As we were singing this morning, the verse that came to my mind was Galatians 2 and verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? What a powerful scripture that goes right along with the um, songs that we were able to sing and, and praise our Lord. It's, it's always good to be mindful of how frail we are and, uh, and how empty we are and, and how insignificant we are and how great our Lord is. Amen. He is ultimately our value. And so I thank Ron and the worship team for the music this morning, and can't thank the worship team enough. They do such a wonderful job each week, and it's an honor to be a part of that, part of the service. We're going to open up God's Word now, so if you would join me back in the book of 1 John in the third chapter. I was thinking this week of how um, we see God's grace and his compassion um, in this book and, and really in the, in the whole of scriptures. We see the strand of God's grace run throughout scripture. I can remember before I was a believer, I was um, very religious. My dad was a pastor and I grew up in a Christian home and, um, and, and I was very religious, but yet everything that I believed and held to was a, was a kind of a works-related system. And I, and I always found myself confused. The Word of God was very confusing to me because it just didn't seem to fit together. It was like a puzzle that you're trying to put together and the pieces just don't fit, right? And you just get a headache trying to put a puzzle together where the puzzle, the puzzle pieces don't fit. And um, what was amazing is when God came to open up my eyes to understand that the, the key, if you will, to the puzzle of the Christian life is grace, and when you are able to look at God's word through the eyes of grace, and you're able to see Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22 is a, is a, a, a long story of grace. And it was really neat to see how God just began to open up my eyes and everything, every piece of the puzzle began to fit. And, and all of scripture made sense to me. And all that, all that was missing, <laughs> you know, we, we say that all that was missing, right? But all that was missing was the key. And one small, insignificant word from a human perspective, but one enormous truth. And, uh, and if we can just look at God's word through the eyes of grace, we can see it. And he wrote a book here, uh, uh, one um, of the 66 books that he gave us, and uh, he wrote all about eternal security. And that he wants us to know, and he says in chapter 5 and verse 13, I want, I'm writing this to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know. He wants us to be sure uh, of where our eternal destiny is. And, uh, and really, there's nothing, there's nothing more important. Our, our life, James tells us that our life here on earth is like a vapor, right? It appears for a short time, and, and then it's gone. And uh, we don't understand that. We don't comprehend that because we live from day to day. But, but when you compare life to eternity, when you compare 100 years to a billion years, all of a sudden we begin to understand why eternal life is so much more important than, than, um, than this temporary life and why that we should live not for the things of this world and the things of this life, but, but for the things of the next life, right? 
It's almost like when you raise up your kids, you want to you teach your kids, right? They go, to, they go to school, and a lot of them don't like to go to school, do they? But we make them go to school because we know that if they don't go to school, it's going to be hard for them to go to college, right? And we say, you know what? You need to be ready to go to college. And so we, f- we force them to go to school at age five because we want them to be ready for age 18 when they go to college, right? And then we tell them, you're going to go to college because we want you to be able to get a good job. And we force them sometimes to go to college so that they can then get a good, get a good career, right? And, and, and we, we force certain things on them because we're always trying to make sure that they're prepared for the next step in their lives. Makes sense. It's good parenting, isn't it? But there's nothing more important and more significant than making sure that we're prepared for what takes place after this life. Nothing compares to the, to the reality that we need to make sure that we're ready. If the Lord were to split the skies today and rapture his church... If we were to leave this earth because of some devastating um, event, that we would be ready to meet God. And so he writes this book, 1 John, and he says, I want, I want you to know, I want you to be sure, I want you to be confident that when the time comes, that you will be ready to meet the Lord. And that's what we want. And that's what we want to understand from this text. So we're going we're gonna to look a little bit at a, um, some review, but for the most part this morning, we're going to open up the last few verses of chapter number three, unpack them, and, uh, and ask the Lord to give us strength and wisdom to understand what he has for us. So let's read um, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says, By this we know that we are of the truth um, and reassure our hearts before him, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And we looked last week at these verses, and we just looked at the fact that the conscience, the heart, as mentioned here in this text, the conscience plays a huge role in relation to our our security. Our our conscience is is either going to confirm us or, or reassure us of our current standings with God. And when we face, remember this, when, when you stand in the face of truth, when God's word is preached to you, when, when your sin or your sinfulness is exposed to you, uh, as Jesus often did with the Pharisees, he would, he would often unpack who they were. He would show them their heart, right? And the Pharisees, when they saw who they were, they would, they would immediately begin to argue and debate and to defend and, and, and everything except to accept and acknowledge and repent they did everything that they could to, to guard themselves. But those who were, those who were to be saved, when they, when they saw themselves in the light of God's word, there was repentance and then there was an embracing of Jesus Christ. Always remember that. There are two responses to truth. One is to protect, guard, and defend self like Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? It's my wife's fault or it's my husband's fault or it's the serpent's fault or it was my family's fault. My family raised me this way or my parents or my grandparents' fault. No, no, it's your fault. Amen? It's our fault. We see ourselves in the light of who we are. We have to get to that place where we, where we accept that it is our problem, not somebody else's problem. So we, we can respond, number one, in guarding ourselves and protecting ourselves and blaming other people, or we can respond with acknowledgement. The other side of it is, is, is responding with an acknowledgement and acceptance, a repentant heart. One embraces self, self-righteousness and self, uh, self-works and goodness. Other one has to embrace something outside of self, which is none other than Jesus Christ. 
And the conscience is there to help us to be, if we're not saved, it's there to help us to be condemned, to see ourselves for who we are and to stand condemned before God. And if we are saved, it's there to assure us before God. It's very important to remember that in the middle of these verses, he says that if your heart condemn you, remember this, God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. So our, our heart, you know what's interesting about your heart? Your heart does not, doesn't even know the full nature of your sinfulness. You don't. You don't know the extent of your sinfulness. But here's what John is saying. If your heart condemns you, if your conscience condemns you, then remember this, God is far greater. And he doesn't just see what you do, but God sees what you think. God sees what you intend God sees your motives. God sees all of that. So he says, be, be very, very, be very careful. In verse 21, down to the end will be our, our main text today. He says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we are confident before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandments that we believe in the name of, the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he hath commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that we abide in him by the spirit whom he has given us. Now what John does here in these last uh, verses of chapter number three is he works backwards. Okay, He starts from the goal. He starts from the, from the end. He starts from the finish line. And he begins to kind of work backwards through the process to, sh- kind, of, to kind of show us what's happening in this process of, of having eternal security. All right? it's, uh, there, there's actually a, a philosophy in our world today that's called backwards planning or backwards problem solving. And again, what happens is, is you take the destination or the expected destination, and then you begin to work back from that destination, and then you find the source of getting to the destination, and then you have planned out or you have mapped out what it takes to reach the goal. This is what John is going to do here. He's going to map out for each one of us what it looks like to be eternally secure. And the reason why he's going to map it out in the way that he does is so that we can know where eternal eternal security comes from, okay, we can know its source, so then we know how to pursue it, right? We, we know what it takes to pursue eternal security because we know where it comes from. If you don't know where something comes from, you might pursue all of the wrong things in trying to get it. You might even get to a point where you feel comfortable or confident that you have it and then find out down the road that you didn't really have it anyway, right? Any of you ever, like me, ever felt really, really secure in your salvation, and then something happened that you felt very, very insecure about your salvation? Anybody, anybody want to kiss? Okay, good. <clears throat> Not alone this morning. All right. It happens, doesn't it? And what I found in my life as I go through that process and I experience those things, what I find is that my security, the basis of my security, the foundation of my security is wrong, and so therefore I have to reevaluate where am I going, where am I getting this security from? And so what John does is he's going to unpack for us each step in this security process so that we know what we we need to pursue if we want to be eternally secure. How many of you want to be eternally secure this morning? You want to know in your heart that you are God's children. With all the things going on around us, folks, there is nothing more important than being secure about where you're going when this life ends. There's nothing more important 
Death doesn't, death, death no longer causes me fear. And it's not because I'm not afraid of the pain or the hurt that might go into it, but there's something about the Spirit of God within us that causes it to be less hard to think about. Is that, is that, a, is that a good way of saying it? All right, thank you. For those that shook their head, yes. <laughs> so, so we can know where our security comes from. We know what to pursue. Number two, we can know what our security, security comes from so we can know how to disciple others to having it. Anybody ever come to you and says, you know what, I'm just struggling with my salvation? And, and you just didn't know what to tell them, right? You didn't, you didn't know what to say. You didn't have the words to say to disciple them. Maybe they were saved and they were just really, really um, concerned about where their, where their soul was at. And maybe they weren't saved and you just didn't really know how to get them to the place where they were secure in the Lord. And this, is, this is why John goes through this process to help us to see the goal and then works backwards so that we can see the root. We can see, we can see the source of it so we know what to pursue. We can kind of see the well of assurance, where that well is, and then we can lead people to that well, right? There's a lot of things that take place from the source to the goal, okay? There's a lot of things that take place from the source to the goal, but be careful because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll pursue something that's in the middle, but we won't pursue the source, The source is what makes the middle possible that leads us ultimately to the goal, which is eternal security. Let me also say this to you. Eternal security comes from the same place that salvation comes from. The same thing that you seek for salvation is the same thing that you seek for eternal security. So you can draw that parallel line today and say, here's how I have eternal security. But if you're sitting here in our congregation and you're lost... Here's how I have salvation. Okay, they run side by side. They run parallel, parallel together. So let's, uh, t- together this morning, I have five or six points, and I don't know if I'll get through them all, but I'm going to try to work through them fairly quickly. Let's work together. Number one, let's start from the goal, as John does. What is this assurance? He says, he says it this way, if our heart does not condemn us, um, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Okay, so, so, so the goal here that John talks about is somebody who, who, is, who is confident before God. It, it means that they're, they're, they're fearless, they're, they're bold, they're able to enter into the presence of God, and he uses prayer um, interchangeably here with before God. He goes on to say that we can ask anything that we want. Um, 1 John 5 and verse 13 says that... Um, we know that we have eternal life, and verse 14 talks about that we have this confidence that if we ask anything of him, we have it, right? Uh, the Gospels talk about any, asking anything in the Lord's name, and we will have those things. So the confidence that we have is that we can go into the presence of God, this confidence, and we can have peace, we can have confidence, we can have boldness, we can have an expectation that God is going to bless the requests that we ask of him. Now, it's so important to understand that we, we go to the Lord and ask the Lord for a lot of things that we don't receive, right? Anybody? I mean, I hope, I hope I'm not the only one in that boat, right? We go to the Lord and ask Him for a number of things that we don't receive when we ask Him. And most of the time, it's because we're not asking in accordance with His character or in accordance with His will. Now, Jesus did the same thing in the Garden of Eden. Did he, not in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He said, <laughs> that's a, you can laugh. Oh, oh. I think I disturbed a child on that one. <laughs> child, the child knows the truth. He's like, that's blasphemy. <laughs> All right, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He said, Lord, take this cup away from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done, right? That should be what our prayer life is like. So when we ask things the Lord, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we have confidence and boldness, not that God is going to give us our will, but that God is always going to give us his will. God's always going to give us what is right. And the goal of prayer is that our will lines up with his will. Our desires line up with his desires. And so this is the, this is the end result. This is the confidence. We, we grow in confidence as we, as we pray, and we're at one with God. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, right? We pray, and as we see God answering our prayer, it assures us that we are, that we are his, Right? And as we pray and we don't see God answering our prayers, it reminds us that there's something missing. There's something wrong here. Why am I not connecting? What's wrong with my desires not matching up with God's desires? But the more we pray and ask God and we see his, his will and our will being matched up and we see it being accomplished, the more confidence that we have that we are his children. We can come into his presence with boldness and confidence and be uh, totally free of fear, the, the Greek word here, uh, some of the definitions are to be frank, blunt, plain, outspoken. You, you, maybe you've met someone like that before, right? This is what the Lord says, that when we go into his presence, that there's some confidence there, there's something there that makes us to be totally free to speak. There's absolutely no fear it's like, a, it's like the perfect relationship between a father and a child that they can actually come and they can just say whatever is on their mind and they can know that they're going to receive exactly what they need in that situation. This is the confidence, this is the assurance that God gives his children. Acts 4.13, the Bible says, and when they saw the boldness, there's that Greek word again, parousia. It means, again, it means that, that confidence. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they had been with the Lord. It's not just a boldness in, in human perspective, but it's a boldness in the presence of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter number 4, in verse 15, it talks about that we have a high priest who has been, who has been tested in all the ways who has been tempted, in every way as we have been tempted, yet without sin. And in verse 16 he says, but now we can come boldly, there to that word again, we can come openly, we can come freely into the throne room of grace and find strength to help in times of need. Here's this confidence, this assurance that we have that we can enter into the presence of God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the judge of all things, and we can stand in his presence and be totally bold to say whatever we want to say and know that he is there to receive us, he is there to embrace us, and he is there to help us. And those things only apply to whom? They only apply to his children. You see, the confidence is I am one of his children. And therefore, when I come into his presence in prayer, when I come into his presence through his word, I am going to experience his embrace. 
I'm going to experience his help. I'm going to experience his kindness. I'm never going to experience his wrath. I'm never going to experience God's wrath. Never, if you're a child of God, conclude that God will ever show you his wrath. Jesus took it all for you. Amen? When we think that we're under God's wrath as children of God, we have just minimized the full effect of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. He cannot and will not show his wrath towards his own children. Amen? Can I get an amen on that one? It's a wonderful truth. He, Isaiah 53, bore on his body our sins, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It satisfied God completely towards his people. It's a a wonderful confidence that we can have in him, that we can come into his presence with boldness and receive the things that we need from him. And I would be far... I would not be, I believe, far-fetched to say that we also often receive the things that we desire. I think the Lord cares about us enough to not just give us what we need, but I think there are times that what we desire doesn't conflict with what we need, and the Lord is willing. It's like your kids. Your kids might ask you for something, and you just want to bless them, right? It's not going to hurt them, and you want to bless them. I think the Heavenly Father is that way as well. He doesn't just give us always what we need, but I think he cares a lot about us to give us what we desire, what we want, especially or namely when it doesn't come in conflict with him. So we have assurance. We have this confidence before God. Now, where does this assurance come from? Let's go on. Here's step. Here's, the, here's right before the finish line, okay? We're going to go back here. The Bible says um, in our text, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and, we, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Here's the next step behind the finish line. Because we keep his commandments. Okay? So assurance, where does assurance come from? What is assurance, point one? Where does assurance come from, point two? Assurance comes from keeping God's commandments. Assurance comes from keeping God's commandments. And, and, and I want you to understand this. Again, we, we believe that salvation is by grace alone. We believe that assurance is by grace alone. But listen to me. We are not about to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Meaning this, that where grace is, obedience is. That when God bestows grace upon you, you will see fruits in your life. You will see obedience in your life. You will see transformation in your life. It is a given. It is a step between the, um, it is a step between the beginning point, the source, and the end. Obedience is in there. It's like people say, I know I've been justified, and I know that one day I'll be glorified, but this whole sanctified thing, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, problem is, is that justification and glorification are both in invisible events, right? And sanctification is the only way that you can be sure that you're going to experience glorification and that you have experienced justification. If you're not seeing the work of God in your life, if you're not seeing obedience to him, submission to him, a love for him, there is a problem with relationship. 
You have to go back to the source to find out where that problem is. Deal with that problem because obedience is a part of the process of having eternal security. Let me read a couple of verses to you here. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, the Bible says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what shall be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We see this idea of obedience mixed in the process. When, when somebody gets saved, they get saved by submitting to the will of God and the work of God. Someone is assured of their salvation when they submit to God and to his work. When they see that obedience flowing through them, when they see that submissive heart, when they see that obedient heart, when they see that rebellion going away and disappearing, and all of a sudden now they have submission and obedience and kindness and, 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 and helpfulness and all of these things that are the works, the fruits of the Spirit, they see these things flowing through them. These things are not natural, but these things are supernatural. He tells us two commands that we're to keep. Remember, he says, because we, we are confident, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, and this is the commandment, that you believe in the name of, the son, of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. He gives us two commandments. Number one is to embrace Jesus Christ. You have to believe in the name. The word name here in the Greek literally means you believe in his character. You believe in everything that there is about Jesus Christ. It's not your imagination of who Jesus Christ is. It is what does the word of God say about who Jesus Christ is. And you must embrace all that there is in God's word about Jesus Christ. All that he is and all that he has done. Oh, what a wonderful story. We could not even begin to unpack the glories of our Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. The, the realities of all of the things that he is for us and all of the things that he has done for us. But Jesus Christ says that if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be assured of your salvation, you have to embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you. As a matter of fact, the reality of it is this morning is, is if you're embracing something that you have done to be saved or something that you continue to do to be assured, you will always fall short of true salvation and always fall short also of true assurance. True salvation and true assurance comes as the result of embracing what Jesus Christ has done for you. Amen? The first commandment is simple. Believe Embrace, trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It sounds simple, but it's not. It's not. It's supernatural. It is not natural for men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not natural for men to embrace the works of someone else to determine their eternal destiny. It is natural for you to embrace your own works. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. Note that if you're writing notes, 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became for us. He is for us wisdom, 
righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It doesn't say that he gave to us. It says that he is for us. We must embrace who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you that first of importance and what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for my sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen to me. Your salvation and your security are based 100% on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Have you embraced that this morning? There is no doubt, there is no frustration, there is no confusion in those who have embraced Christ. And then he says, love your brother. I like that. He kind of just kind of throws that one in, and here's why. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 15, I just read it to you, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. I want to say to you this morning that Jesus Christ being buried is not a part of the gospel. What he is saying is this, Jesus Christ's burial proves that he died. And then he says that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by 500. That is not a part of the gospel. That he rose again is a part of the gospel, but that he was seen by 500 is proof that he rose again the third day. And here's what I want you to know this morning. Loving your brother is proof that you have embraced Jesus Christ. It's evidence The whole book of 1 John says, if you don't love your brother, you cannot say that you love God. Because when you love God, the evidence is going to be that you're going to, that's right, you're going to love your brother. Because loving your brother, listen to me, loving your wife, guys, is proof that you love God. Did you get that? Loving your wife is proof that you love God. Ladies, submitting to your husband is proof that you love God. Children, obeying your... That was something the ladies were supposed to say amen to, not the men. Some some man is going to be living in the doghouse tonight. I can see it now. That was on you, not on me. Children, your obedience to your parents proves that you love God. It's true, isn't it? Am I telling you things that are not... In the Bible, Ephesians 5 and 6 lays it out for us clearly. Love each other, but don't love each other as a way to get God's favor. Love each other because you're already in God's favor. Listen, love each other because God loved you. Right? When you come to embrace, that's why he says in in chapter 4, he says this. He says, if you don't love each other, then you don't know God, right? Because God is love. In in other words, if you don't love your brother, you don't know God because God loves you. We obey his commandments, and then he says, observe his pleasures. I wrote this down secondly. Observe his pleasures. It's not just obey his commandments, but he says this, and that we do what is pleasing, um, that we do what is pleasing to him. 
In other words, we not only obey his commandments, but we do what pleases him. We do what pleases God. And yes, they can be tied together, but this carries with it a far more of an emotional piece to the puzzle. It's not just doing a list of rules and regulations, but it's, it's, it's having a passion towards those rules and regulations. The, 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 the Pharisees were good at doing rules and regulations, right? But there's a difference between doing rules and regulations and, there's a, and, and enjoying the one who wrote the rules and regulations. So it's not, just, it's not just doing the rules and regulations that brings us that security, but it is loving the one who made the rules and regulations. So we embrace what Christ did for us. That's the behind the goal, we have that immediately behind it. Obeying God, loving what God loves is proof that we are saved. It brings assurance. Next of all, what does obedience or where does obedience come from? Here's what he says. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments, now watch this, here's where obedience to God's commandments come from. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. So the reason why we keep God's commandments is because God is in you, and you are in God. There's a unity that has taken place between you and God that causes you to keep his commandments, that causes you to be confident before him. There's a a union that has taken place that has made you alive spiritually. And that union causes you to be obedient and causes you to love what Jesus loves. and 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 that obedience causes you to be confident in what God has done for us. Colossians 1.27, the Bible says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me just unpack this for you very simply. Two things he mentions in here. Number one is Christ in me, And number two is me in Christ. So what does it mean that Christ is in me? The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? I already read to you Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it is Christ who is in Christ me. What's amazing is what the scripture is teaching here is that there's a union that has been created, and that union is is that Christ, Jesus, the essence of Christ, the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, the spirit of Christ has come to live inside of me. And that when he came to live inside of me, he came with all of the full benefits of his glory. In, In other words, I am I am a partaker of all that Jesus Christ is. Amen? By him living, it's not him imparting these things to me, it's him imputing these things to me. It's these things being credited to my account in Christ. Many theologians refer to this as an alien righteousness. It's not my own. That's why he says over in 1 Corinthians 1 that he became for us these things. 
It's not that I've become great. It's, it's Romans 7 where Paul says, In me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But what was in him was what made Paul righteous. It was the Spirit of God. So we do what is right because God lives in us. He even says in, the, in this book, we read it in chapter number 3, he says, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God cannot sin. The idea of it is, is that God's perfection is in them, and therefore they will not continue to live a lifestyle of sinfulness. There's a union that causes obedience, that causes assurance. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? And then he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Other versions say, unless you are disqualified. Christ in me makes me righteous. Not only Christ in me makes me righteous, but me in Christ. The Bible refers to me as being in Christ over and over again throughout the New Testament. Clothed in his righteousness. The Bible says that we have been hidden, Colossians 3 and verse 3, for you have died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. So not only is God, is Christ in you, because then we still have to deal with that flesh that is still sinful. So what he does is, not only does he come to live within us and become righteousness for us, but then he clothes us with himself. Amen? And now we are one. We are righteous because God now sees us, Christ in us, and then sees us in Christ. That's where salvation and assurance comes from. It's not that you wear your robe of righteousness, my friend. If you want to be assured of your salvation this morning, it's that you wear the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he became sin. He wore our robe of unrighteousness that we might wear his robe of Right. We might become the righteousness. Listen to what it says. We might become the righteousness of God What's the last two words of that verse? In him. That's where the confidence comes from. That's where the assurance comes from. I've been, I've been united with Christ. He lives inside of me and I live inside of him. And because of this, I am confident that we are one. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 and 8 says, In him, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he hath lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. In him. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any of all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. Listen to me. If you're saved this morning, Jesus Christ comes and he lives inside of you and he brings everything necessary for your salvation, for the glory of God. He brings it with him into you. That's why, listen, our life is not about becoming better. Our life is about getting out of the way. Paul doesn't say make yourself better. He says learn to die to yourself because dying to yourself makes Christ seen and magnified. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have this enormous, extraordinary treasure. Where's that treasure at? It is in us and that we bear this treasure in an earthen, insignificant vessel. So that why? So that the glory of the Lord might shine through us. It's not about our earthen vessel being great. It's about the treasure that's within that earthen vessel being magnificent. Amen? It's about him in you. And every day of your life, you get to be minimized, and he gets to be maximized. What did John the Baptist say? I must so that you can I must decrease so that you might increase. Amen? Amen. I'll say amen. I love it. I love you guys. And I can feel the Lord working in our midst this morning, and, I, and that's because of your hearts and his presence. Number four, I believe it is, where does union come from? Here's what he says, and here's the root. This is where it all, this is where it all comes together. He says, and by this we know that he abides in us. And here's, here's the source, here's the root, here's the starting, here's the start line, here's the gun, if you will, by the Spirit of God whom he has given us. The Spirit of God is the beginning of all of this. We cannot be united with Christ. We cannot be obedient to Christ. We cannot be assured of Christ unless we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what makes all of these things not just possible, but when the Spirit of God comes to live within your life, it makes all of these things guaranteed. It is the source, the beginning point is that we have God's Spirit. I always love when people quote to me John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him hath everlasting life, right? And I always tell them, yes, but don't leave out John 3, 1 through 8, which says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You cannot believe on Jesus Christ. You will not believe on Jesus Christ unless you are indwelt by his spirit. We need the Spirit of God to come and live inside of us to make all of the things that God requires of us not just possible, but they become a reality to us. We wake up in the morning and we desire to do the things of God. And my friends, that doesn't come from us, does it? I want to encourage you. I don't have time this morning to unpack the rest of this, this point. But listen to me. I want you to read John 14 through John 17, the Bible says this, 
The Bible talks about the Trinity, that God the Father is one with God the Son, and that God the Father and God the Son being one, and then we are made one with them. How are we united with God? We're united with God by the fact that his spirit lives in us. What a crazy, amazing truth. We are made one with God through his indwelling Holy Spirit. John 14 through 17, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1. And then what happens is, is when you're united with the Spirit of God, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23 become a reality. These are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, right? So what happens is, is this, listen, the reason why if, the reason why it says, Galatians 5, that these are the fruit, it doesn't say fruits, it says fruit of the Spirit, is simply this, they're not your fruits. They're not your fruits. They're His fruits. He's living through you now. You are indwelt by Him, and He is living through you, amen? And when you bear the fruits of the Spirit of God, you know that you are, you know that you are His, Amen? You see, where the confidence comes from is being indwelt by, him, by God's Spirit that leads to unity with Christ, that leads to obedience to Christ, that leads to confidence with Him. Lastly, this morning, what or why does the Spirit unite us? I just want to give you this. We're down to the roots. You say, Pastor John, I get it. I need the Spirit of God. Okay, amen, you got it. Now, here's the question. How do I get the Spirit of God? Here's the danger. Here's the danger point. Because what people will do is they'll tell you everything that you can do in your power to get the Spirit of God. John 3 and verse 8 says this very clearly. The wind or the Spirit blows where it wants to and when it wants to. You hear the sound of it and you see the effects of it. But listen to me. You cannot control it. You cannot control the Spirit of God. Of God. So what do we do? We come to realize if I want to be saved, I got to have the Spirit of God. If I want to be obedient, I got to have the Spirit of God. If I want to be confident in the Lord, I've got to have the Spirit of God. If I want to, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to do anything for the Lord, you've got to have the Spirit of God. Here's what he says in the text. By the Spirit which he has gifted or given us. The Spirit of God is a gift. It's something that God bestows upon us. He says in uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, when he gives us the Spirit, he gives us eternal life. He gives us his life. There, listen, there is no life that's eternal except Jesus's. Eternal means no beginning and no end, Right? Do I have eternal right? It means that I have been given Jesus' life. The Spirit of God is a gift that he gives you. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, to merit it, or to deserve it. He tells us in Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us, not because works, righteous works that we have done, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regenerating and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
There's nothing that you can do to merit it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. I cannot send you out of here and tell you to do seven of these things and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What I can tell you is this. The Bible tells us in Luke 11 verse 13 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My proclamation to you this morning, my challenge to you this morning is if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living within you, to admit it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then ask him. Don't ask him for good works. Don't ask him to make you a better husband. Don't ask him to make you a better wife. Ask him for his spirit. And when you have his spirit, you already have all these other things. Right? What you need is not all of these extracurricular things. What you need is you need Jesus, right? And when you have Jesus, you have everything. I close with this verse. 1 John 5 and verse 12, the Bible says, whoever has the Son has life. It's what we need this morning. We need Jesus. When we have his spirit, we are automatically united with Christ. We are in him. He is in us. Everything is good. Amen. When we have his spirit, when we have, when we're united with him, we obey him. We keep his commandments. We actually like what he likes. You know, go figure that one. We actually like the things that God likes. And when we do that, then we have confidence and assurance that we can come into his presence and speak openly because he is our heavenly father. We need that assurance. If you're not saved this morning, if you've never come to a point in your life where you have embraced everything that Christ has done for you, my challenge to you this morning is get on your knees before God. Confess that you are unworthy and undeserving and ask him, Lord, please give me the gift, the free gift of your spirit. And then when he gives it to you, you'll know. You'll know it's there because you'll see it coming through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for your word. Thank you for uh, your presence with us and your power and your might and, and Lord, just the opportunity, the privilege that we have to come together here as a church and worship you. And I just pray that you will bless um, your word, that uh, it will not stay here with us and, and, and be left here, but it will go home with everyone who is here. It will be in our hearts and our minds, and we will take what we've learned and, and, and grow from it. We pray your blessing upon this day and this week. May we be devoted and dedicated to all that you are, and we give you the thanks and the praise for in Christ's name. Thank you.